be careful what you talk to me about. I'm just giving you fair warning. Everything that you say to me can and will probably come up in a sermon at some point. Okay? So I have this tale of two Simons, and its origination was actually from uh, Lydia Christensen. She, her, Lydia and Peter are friends of mine and my wife. They've, they've they attended here for a while, but now they've moved to Phoenix. They're, um, I hiked the Grand Canyon a little bit with Pete. I did a lot of hiking and running with Pete. Great friends of mine. And about three years ago, two and a half years ago, we went, they had a, they had a, you know, a trailer and they went out into the woods and they, they said, hey, come out here for dinner. So we went out there and had a dinner around a fire and all that fun stuff. And Lydia was talking about this book called Four Witnesses. And uh, it talks about in history, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, and Irenaeus of Lyons. Um, these were basically, if I was going to say, these are the apostolic fathers. These were the people that succeeded the apostles in the, in the first century leading into the second century in terms of teaching and guiding Christianity through this maze of what the world had become at the time, okay? So she talks about this book, and I had gone through um, a, a, a class when I was doing, uh, getting my degree at Grand Canyon called Historical Theology. Historical Theology was the history of how we think in Christian from the beginning, from Jesus up to now. Um, and actually, when I post this, I'm actually going to post a link because Master's uh, Theological Seminary actually has their Historical Theology um, class on YouTube. And you can actually watch it. And it's absolutely fascinating and amazing as it talks about the, the history of thought throughout this. But that's something if you ever wanted to look at, you look at. But she was talking about kind of the importance of history. And I had just gone through this. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty good. She says, I'm going to give you this book. Well, she never gave me the book because she was finishing the book. They, when they moved about four, four months ago, I'm over there helping them move. And she's going, oh, by the way, here's the book. So I get the book and I actually start reading it. And I come across kind of the hist of what this title of it here, the tale of two Simons here, okay? Um, so Lydia, this one's for you. I'm looking in the camera when, she, when her and Pete watch this. This is for Lydia and Pete uh, for the friendship that they've given me, and that's where the kind of the genesis of this came from. Okay, the second thing that happened, Brandon last week, I was talking about doing this sermon, and Brandon back here um, actually spoke the last lines of A Tale of Two Cities, Okay? If you're under the age of 25, I'm looking across the crowd. Under the age of 25, what is the tale of two cities about? Well, under 25. Well, it is hard. Yeah. French Revolution. What two cities is it talking about? Huh? What particular, what cities in France and England? Paris, London. Okay. Um. Interestingly enough, you know, we do movie quotes all the time. If you're young, okay, you may not know the tale of two cities, but did you watch the, the Batman Dark Knight series? Batman Begins, Batman, uh, see, Batman Begins, Batman the Dark Knight, and Dark Knight Rises, right? Okay, who is the bad guy in the Dark Knight Rises? He had the mask. Bane. Bane. Bane took over. Gotham. And so Gotham's now kind of under control of Bane and, and all anarchy's breaking loose and the, and the bad guys are all in control. And they hold these tribunals of all of the leaders of Gotham and, they, and they're mock trials, right? And they come up with these 
sentences of banishment. And banishment basically is making them go out on the ice uh, until the ice breaks and they fall through and they die. So it's basically, it's killing them. So in The Dark Knight Rises, they're doing this. I didn't know until I really looked at this that The Dark Knight Rises is actually an allegory from A Tale of Two Cities. That they actually, in fact, it's so close to it that at the, when, when Commissioner Gordon's going on, when they, they sentence Commissioner Gordon to the ice, he actually speaks the last words of Tale of Two Cities before he actually is saved by Batman at this point and, and goes on. So if you didn't know the Tale of Two Cities, but you saw The Dark Knight Rises, you're going to get A Tale of Two Cities a little bit because it's the same kind of concept. So anyway, um, be careful what you speak to me because it may actually end up. But I taught this The Tale of Two Simons instead of The Tale of Two Cities. Um, one of the things I, when I read, when I got into this, I just got this quote from A Tale of Two Cities. The opening lines, and everybody's kind of maybe heard, the best of time, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, right? Okay, what about the rest of it? And to see if this doesn't, Dickens was absolutely fascinating as a, as a writer. He wrote some incredible stuff. Listen to the first lines of this and tell me if you don't see some of the parallels to what we do today. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. Pretty powerful, because this has direct... <laughs> correlations between our days today and even those days that were happening then, right? That, that he is touching a vein of humanity that very few people have, do in, in fictional history, because this is, this is a work of fiction. So I get into here, and what I want to talk about two Simons. The first one, Simon Peter, okay? So Simon Peter. What do we know about Simon Peter? What, what is your basic knowledge of Simon Peter? Give me just some things you know about Peter right off the top of your head. He was a fisherman. What else? He was an apostle. What else was he? Huh? He was a little bit impulsive. He had, he had some uh, uh, emotional control issues. Would you say? I'll never, I would never do anything to betray you, Jesus. And a little girl comes up to him and goes, aren't you, didn't you, weren't you with Jesus? Not just a girl, a slave girl. And he goes, I don't know, Jesus, who, Jesus, Jesus who? Right? A little bit different. He was a disciple of Jesus. He walked and talked with Jesus. What's some of the things he did with Jesus? What's one of the big things he did with Jesus? What did he do? Walked on water. Dude walked on water. Okay, that's pretty, that's a lot. He also was there at the transfiguration of Jesus. So him, John, I think it was him, John, James, and I can't remember who else, but they were, they were together when Jesus was kind of exposed for some of the glory that he had from God, right? So he was there seeing the physical manifestation of some of the glory of who Jesus really was. Um, as we move on into, 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 the, into, into Acts, he became the catalyst for Christian ministry. He was the very first one to preach a sermon at Pentecost. Spirit comes down, people start talking in crazy languages that people can actually understand. And Peter sits there and goes, hey, 
Let me tell you about who, what this is and explains the gospel message to the people. And 5,000 people came to Christ that day. Pretty big stuff. He ends up ministering throughout Judea into Antioch at some point, and then eventually ends up where? Where does he end up at the end of his ministry? Rome. He ends up in Rome itself, the center of the world at the time, so to speak. He ends up in Rome. So much so that basically the Roman Catholic Church says he was the first what? He was the first pope. Okay? And you know what? Interestingly enough, as much as we're not Catholic by nature, in terms of how they describe what a pope was, they were right. He was the first leader of the church, the bishop of the church of Rome. Because at the time, all they had, they didn't have the scriptures. They didn't have things to tell them about what was true and what was not true. They just had leaders, and those leaders had to have some kind of tie, some kind of history with Jesus. And who better to have a history with Jesus than Peter? Right? So he being the first pope at that point. We know quite a bit about Peter. The second Simon we're going to talk about, though, Simon the Magician. Okay? We only have one instance in Scripture in which Simon the Magician comes in. I'm going to read it here in a second. Simon the Magician was a man from Samaria, interestingly enough. Um, Samaria created the what? What, what do we know about Samaria? Who, who, are, who are in Samaritan? Who are in Samaria? Samaritans, right? And we have, uh, what, what parables do we have that includes Samaritans? Huh? The woman at the well was a Samaritan, and which other one? The, the good Samaritan, the guy on the road, right? So we have Samaria and Samaritans interacting here. The thing about Samaritans were Samaritans were this mixed breed. They had Jewish in them, but they also had many of the other cultures from the, from the Middle East area all associated with them because of their history. So they had bled in some Judaism. They liked the first five books of the Old Testament. They did not like the rest of them. And they integrated a lot of the other cultures' religions into theirs. So they did a lot of multiple worshiping. They had no problem worshiping many other gods along with the God of the universe and so forth. That was kind of this culture of Samaria. And this guy, Simon the Magician, came from there. Okay? So let's read what does the Bible in Acts say about Simon the Magician. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. 
Let me have this power too, he exclaims, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. And his response was, pray to the Lord for me. Simon exclaimed that these things, terrible things you've said won't happen to me. So we have a very different attitude in the Simon the Magician than we have in Simon Peter, do we not? A different way in which he sees the religious world, a different way in which his attitude picks up the things that are supposed to be. It says he believed and was baptized. Okay? Does that mean that he necessarily was saved? In fact, much of this leans the other way, saying, hey, you're still evil in your thoughts. You still have bitter jealousy. You have problems. It's all about you at this point, and you have nothing about God. Because if he truly was repentant, what should be his words right here? What should he say to Simon before God right here? What would be the best thing that he could have done? Forgive me. I'm evil. I got problems humbled himself, put him before it, and he would have been saved. But instead, he looks at them and says, pray for me so these things don't happen to me. This is the last thing that we hear about Simon the magician because the point in all of this is the spread of of the gospel throughout the area. But history tells us the story kind of Simon, and it's a history that we really don't know a whole lot about because unfortunately, we as Christians don't do a lot of looking back at history, looking at some of the people like Clement of Rome, like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and seeing the things that they wrote about and things that were important to them that they talked about. This guy actually was one of them. So one of the descriptions of him, Simon Magus, Magus actually means magician, so that's where we get Magus, Simon Magus or Simon the magician. Extra source of his stories of him. One comes from Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was after Peter in Rome. Uh, He was a leader of the church, known to be associated with some of the church, and had some writings in the the late first century, beginning of the second century. Okay? Justin Martyr actually explained some things about Simon Magus that put it a little more in context. Um, He actually talked about the fact that Simon became a direct rival to Peter in Rome. So Simon, after this interaction with Peter, actually began to, be, to do some teaching in, in, throughout, throughout Samaria at the time and eventually ended up in Rome in contest with the teachings of Simon Peter. So this guy had more to do than what just was said in the Bible. He had some serious issues about him in terms of his teaching because it was all about power. Does that make sense? He wanted power. It was all about power and signs. Look at me. Look what I can do. I can do these miracle things. I can do this magic stuff. Follow me in this, and you'll be able to partake of this too. So Justin Martyr gives us a great description of, hey, this guy went on to do something bigger than just have this interaction with Peter. Irenaeus a little later than Justin Martyr, actually begins to 
talk about the fact that he was the father of all heresies. Up to this point in, in Christianity, so this is about 20, 25 years after Jesus died and was rose again, right? The only real contest to Christianity for the first 20 years was the Jews and Rome, right? So you had, you had, you had religious persecution and fighting against Christianity, and you had political, the, the world. But they were directly fighting Christianity. Simon Magus began the first enemy from within, started to claim some version of Christianity, but perverted it through something else, okay? It's one thing to say, hey, you're wrong and that's it. It's another thing to claim, hey, you kind of got it right, Peter, guy who walked with Jesus, guy who walked on water, who was there. You know what? That's cool and all, but I really got, I got something here. Watch this. Watch me do this. And then proclaim a different message than Peter entirely. In fact, when you really come down to it, there, when it says the father of all heresies, the biggest, what was the biggest heresy kind of in the first century? What's the G word that doesn't, you only actually say the G, of Gnostic, Gnosticism. It really says he's the father of Gnosticism. His ideas were not necessarily true, full-born Gnosticism. Gnosticism says this. What it said was, there's a secret knowledge, there's a special knowledge that you have to achieve in order truly to be saved. Like, you can know Jesus, you can have these things, but unless you get with us and come up with this special knowledge, you really don't know what you're doing and how you're doing it. Simon Magus was kind of the beginning of that. His followers became known as Simonians, okay? He being the leader in the Simonians, and those Simonians filtered into Rome and began to pervert the message of Jesus in Rome and was very attractive to people. There are a lot of people that are going to be attracted by big showy signs, big personalities, right? Um convincing arguments. People become, that we're human beings. We get taken by all of this. Hippolytus was a writer after Irenaeus, and he actually describes um, Simon the magician's demise. And he had gotten so far into what he thought, he literally said before he was going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to be in the grave three days, I'm going to rise again. That's how far he went. Now, interestingly enough, did he rise again? He did not. <laughs> shocker, <laughs> shock face, right? Here's my shock face. But this guy basically became the exact counter to what Simon Peter was throughout history. These are things we didn't know. We didn't know that he did this stuff or it was the father of all these things. But what a great kind of contrast to kind of get us into something as we go here. There's another term. Term is simony. Anybody know what the term simony means or where it came from? Simony. Who we got? Anybody? Even Randy didn't know that one. Simony. Yeah. Making money through religion is a perfect way of putting it. It became the description 
of those specifically, and, and, and the term really came into the Middle Ages or during Roman Catholicism, of those that bought positions within the church. So they became people of notoriety because they paid somebody money to gain some kind of position or some kind of power within the, church, within the Roman Catholic Church. That's kind of, and it went back to a description of Simon Magus. That's why they called it simony. They, were, they, were, they, were, uh, they, they performed simony at the time. So that's where the term came from. This guy had an attitude problem, and it was big. It was pretty massive. I want to read to you Simon Peter's kind of last words. He wrote 1 Peter while he was in Rome. This was probably within two or three years of him being martyred in Rome, Rome killing him at this point. Here is a guy who walked with Jesus, walked on water, saw him died, saw him resurrected, saw his glory in the transfiguration, saw multiple people throughout his ministry come to a glorious salvation and a change in their life throughout the 25, 30 years that he was on earth until he he was martyred in Rome. He saw massive things happen and was a major catalyst in it, okay? Of anybody to have an ego in this, he had every right. He had every right to say, guys, listen to me because this is who I am and this is where I am. And we wouldn't have blamed him, right? We would have no problem having him say these things because he deserved it. But instead, how does he end his book of 1 Peter? 1 Peter 5. And now a word to you who are elders in the church. I too am an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And I too will share in his glory when he is revealed to the whole world as a fellow elder. I appeal to you, care for the flock that God has entrusted you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly. Not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned in your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory. Here's a guy who had every reason to lord it over you. And by the way, that's part of his personality. He would have done that because he, I'm not going to, you know, all, all, throughout, this, all throughout, throughout the gospels, he's the guy saying, well, I'm never going to do that. And I, he's puffing out his chest and his pride takes a beating time after time after time again. Finally, even so much, his pride some, somewhat got taken out by Paul, did it not? Right? Peter goes in with a bunch of Jews. He's been eating in the houses of Gentiles all the time. All of a sudden, these Jewish guys show up, and he goes, ooh, not going to eat with those Gentiles now. I'm going to go eat with these Jews. And Paul calls him out and says, hey, who are you? Why are you doing this? So even in, even in the midst of his ministry, he gets called out. So there's something going on in his life that's different. And it shows in his message. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care. Lead them by your example. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. And all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, 
and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. The guy with the most pride, the guy with the most ability, really, looks and says, he opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. The direct opposite of a Simon Magus. I speak all of this because we have a challenge. Even, you know, the beginning of A Tale of Two Cities talks about the challenge we have in this time. We have this dichotomy going on. And truth falls behind. Right now, history is on the line, is it not? People right now want to deny the very history that has become of us, whether it's in this country or even in the world. They're trying to change the very history that's made us. And our youth tend to not see it. Interesting historical comment here. What's the big comment of history? What, what, what's the quote attributed to history? If you do something with history, you're doomed to what? Okay. So, the, the, so do you know the exact, what, what do you think the exact quote is, Randy? And to repeat it. I actually looked this up because that's kind of the way I've always heard it. But here's the exact quote, and here's the dude who said it. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. It's a little bit different there. Now, we've turned it into something else, but if you don't remember the past, you are condemned to repeat it. Hidden in this saying is the idea that human nature has a problem. The issue, why why do people want to eliminate history? Why do people want to not talk about it, and move forward with their personal thoughts and things going on right now because they're trying to claim something's good in humanity, not bad. They don't want to look at the badness of human nature. They only want to look at the goodness of me and promote my wants and my desires and myself because those things are actually good. Regardless of what history says, my needs are more important. And if you don't remember what's happened in the past... You are condemned to repeat it. There is no making ourselves good. It's not going to happen, and that's, that's kind of what's happening here. This guy, George Santania, who actually said this. Does anybody know who he is? He was actually um, a professor at Harvard in the, early 19, in the very early 1900s. He was a professor for about 12 years at Harvard, philosophy professor. Um, that brief time he was there, Three particular people that were students of his were W.E. Du Bois, was it W.E. Du Bois, T.S. Eliot, and Robert Frost. Okay? Now, you youth kind of look at me like, huh? Okay? Particularly, Robert Frost wrote a lot of poetry, poems, American poems that, have been, that you would know. You just didn't know it was from Robert Frost. T.S. Eliot wrote a lot of things that you would know, but you had no idea that, of, of where it came from. These were three major writers and thought providers of the United States in the early 19th century. Big, big guys that had a lot of influence. It eventually influenced guys like Mark Twain. You've heard Mark Twain. Okay, no? Mark Twain, no? Okay, just check it. Those who cannot remember the past 
<laughs> Picking on the youth over here, but there's a reason for that. I will, I will expose that a little bit. He wasn't particularly Christian. He was an atheist. But he had, his ideas of history were kind of spot on to what we need to see today, even in Christian thought. We need to see what these guys in history did. The founding, the, the, the first apostolic fathers didn't have the scriptures. They, they were on their own to hold to the truths of Christianity in a world that was trying to destroy it in every way. It first came just with a physical direct attack, and then that attack started to come around the side with people trying to infiltrate through saying, hey, I'm a Christian. Hey, we have Christian thought, but believe me down this way. That was happening in history. As your youth, under 25, as you have kids, if you're in your 30s and 40s with kids, I do believe this becomes highly important for us to teach our kids to understand humanity and human nature has always, always been awful. And you have to look to what those problems have been in order to see what we can do and not do the same things in the future. With that, talk about error within. How are we going to be able to define error within? How can you see when someone comes before you and says, I know the truth, listen to me. How are you going, I'm picking on these guys. There's five guys here ready to be picked on. This is great, okay? But how are you going to be able to determine fact from fiction? <laughs> He's gonna you Googleize it. <laughs> you googly. Google. Google, arbiter of all truth, Google. What are some ways in which we can discover error from a Christian perspective? What's, what's our first primary? Yes, Jamie. Belt of truth. And that truth is built on what? The word of God. Okay? If you're going to build yourself, if you're going to... Uh, Hank Hanegraaff, who was the Bible Answer Man, who had the Bible Answer Man program, one of his, famous, one of his sayings, and it went back to Walter Martin, actually, was be so familiar with the truth that a counterfeit will just simply expose itself, right? So there's one way. Find out. Be so familiar with the truth that when someone speaks, when it sounds a little off, something's wrong. I have a story. Um, when I was in college uh, at one of the five schools I went to when I was in college, sorry, um, I went to a group, and I was in this group Bible study because, you know, I'm like, hey, yeah, a guy invited me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty knowledgeable of this. I need to be in a Bible study. So I get in there, um, and they start teaching, and I start talking. And, well, yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. That's a good one. Go figure. In, t- <laughs> in t- yeah, that's right. In talking, I said, I, and, and I said some stuff, okay? And I thought that was stuff that typically in any Bible study that I would have been a part of would have been, hey, amen, that was a good thing. You know, when we say amen, what do we mean? That's right, I agree. It's kind of the Christian way of saying, I agree. And the things I said were standard Christian thought related. The leader 
first of all, nobody even nodded their head or looked at me when I spoke. And the leader just passed me by and just went on his merry way of speaking and didn't even acknowledge a single thing I said. And I went, okay, that was just weird. And I never went back to the group, thank goodness, um, because I came to discover what it was was there is a Christian cult. Um, they call them, at the time, that was the, it was the Chicago Church of Christ. They will call them a large city, Boston Church of Christ, the Indianapolis Church of Christ. But the whole idea of the, in the first, is a very exclusive Christianity. You know, it's only members of that church are Christian, number one. If you leave their their perfect, they actually send you threats and, and, and dead fish in the mail and saying you're, you're, not, you're going to hell because you left them. And their whole idea of quote-unquote discipleship is a very direct person above you tells you exactly who you need to be around, how you need to be around them, who you listen to, how you listen to them. If you go against that person's thinking, you are against what's going on in the church and they will excommunicate you. That was those people. Now, the great part about that, how did I know not to become a part of them? Because the truth that had been ingrained in me, I just knew there's something fake and phony about this group. They seemed to be saying the right things, but their reactions to me were very different. As young, as young people, as you have children who are going to grow up, the whole point of going through this, of hearing sermons that are boring, sorry guys, okay, <laughs> But the point of all of this is these things become a part of you. And when someone presents to you a counterfeit that sounds good, you're going to know it. When that thing in the back of your head says, you know what, something's off, you run. Because let me tell you something, moving on into the future right now, there's going to be a whole lot of things that are going to be off. Those are ways in which we're going to... So the Word of God being proclaimed and being a part of you is probably the, one of the primary ways. But there is a, another almost foolproof way, and it's what I really want to talk about here, recognizing that error. Somebody can say all the right things. They can have the right language. They can do, they can, and, and you can look at it and go, okay, what they're saying is right, and maybe it's there, maybe it's not. But there is one particular thing that you see in between the two Simons that we can see in people that any cult, anybody who's teaching these errant things almost universally do not find this. What one thing can someone not fake? They can fake language. They can fake actions. They can give to the poor. They can do all these things, but what one thing can they not fake in front of you? You what? Their heart. They can't fake humility. It is impossible. You can try, but as soon as you begin to try to fake a humility in your life, it is going to be someone who really understands it. It exposes them that fast. You look at the the, the standard people, um, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay, that's a standard cult, right? They had a, was it, uh, who was it? It was not, Joseph Smith was the Mormons. Who was the the leader of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses? Russell. You want to talk about an egotistical, pride-filled man? Just looking at what he wrote, much less probably being around him. You look at the people that lead these particular things, it becomes all about 
them. As we move from, okay, that's an obvious cult, into the smaller versions of, okay, a little bit of error here, a little bit of error there. Guys, as we go about churches, finding people with true humility versus not true humility. What does 1 Corinthians say? 1 Corinthians 13 specifically. You can have all the knowledge of God in the world. You can stand up here and proclaim the greatest truths of all humanity. I can understand it all, but if I don't have what? Love. And love is predicated upon my humility before God first and before man second. You can't love without humility. It's not possible. Not true love. It's just an act. If I give to somebody, I'm giving to them if it's because it does something for me. Simon Magus wanted all this power, the power to give the Holy Spirit, because he wanted it for him. Anybody that's coming before you and teaching you error is all about them. Really, and when you really get down to it, when we argue in the argument sense, not in the, not in the debate sense, we all have our debates and we have disagreeing opinions, but when someone's arguing before you, they're making an argument, what are they saying? They're saying, I'm right. Validate me. That's in pride. When we go back here, care for the flock. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly. Don't lord it over the people assigned to you. How many leaders, how many individuals that have some kind of position in some kind of place lord their power over people? If you see power being lorded over somebody, you probably need to run away from that particular place because something in what they're doing is wrong. The end of... A Tale of Two Cities. The end of A Tale of Two Cities. This is the quote. This is the quote that Commissioner Gordon said in the movie. But this is the quote of the man. The whole purpose of, of what was going on here was a, a particular man had taken the place of somebody else after one of their mock trials and let him go live with his kids and get away from, from, from Paris, France. And this guy lived in his place to die by the guillotine. And this is the quote at the very end of the book. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go than I have ever known. Now, who would say that more? Simon Peter? Simon Magus? How did the people in Rome... Samaria, anybody knowing how to know truth from error, looking at their lives, looking at how they walked, looking at what they did and saying, Simon Peter, all of you, dress yourselves in humility as you realize, as you relate to one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God 
And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries. Guys, worry is a function of pride. Worry says, I have control and I feel like I'm out of control. Cast those worries on him because he cares about you. Let's pray. Father, we are living in a post-truth world, really. We're going to face obstacles to truth, Christianity, and everywhere in between as we move forward. I ask, all I ask in, in out of this is this. Imprint upon our hearts the real thing so that when we go into the world, when counterfeits come across and they're going to come across our place, we understand and know it and can move away from it. And on the other side of that, that we then associate with those people that do show truth and particularly do show humility and show God does oppose the proud and he gives grace to those that humble themselves before him and before man. We love you. I just pray for our youth. Put this on their hearts because they have a particularly uh, difficult challenge moving forward. And I ask that those with kids imprinted on their children's hearts as they grow up in this world that's going to challenge them from this point forward. We love you and praise you and thank you for who you are in your son's name. Amen.